Tēnā katoa, and welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey. Doing it solo today, Peter Bale is taking a break in Queenstown, and so this is something different. Those who remember the, the solo hoon I did a few months ago uh, might enjoy that or not, <laughs> but this is how we're going to do it. It's a bit seat of the pants, but I've got something a little bit different. Those of you who uh, watched my video uh, after the monetary policy statement last week will are in for a treat because I'm going to do the same again here and hopefully it will work and we'll make sure that uh, you all get a chance to ask questions in the chat and I'll do my best in the last 15-20 minutes or so to answer questions and have a bit of a yarn which uh, should be fun here on a Friday um, as we get out of this bloody long winter is all I can say. Right, the hoon for the week to August 26, and I hope you get a chance to enjoy this today. All right, so um, things I want, I've got a great picture of a kaka. You've got to have a picture of a kaka in the hoon, I think, um, uh, which I enjoy. We're going to talk today about the week retail sales numbers, which came out yesterday. However, we've also got some really good consumer confidence figures that have come out as well. And um, better US GDP numbers, you know, my overall theme this week is that things aren't as bad as some people might feel or think. And even though we say we're grumpy, and I suspect part of it's because it's the middle of winter and we've all spent way too much time on our phones doom scrolling, we need to get off those damn things. Uh, but actually things are a bit um, better than we think, unless of course you're in Europe, because uh, it's going to be a tough cold, expensive winter, and I'll go into that in a bit more uh, detail as well. And I'll try and give you a, a setup for Jackson Hole. Um, if you haven't heard of Jackson Hole, it's a very swish uh, a mountain retreat in Wyoming where all the billionaires and private equity people go. And this weekend, the world's top 100 central bankers are there to talk about what they got horribly wrong during COVID and what they're going to do about it. And that includes Adrian Orr, actually, who's gone across there this week to um, uh, move and shake with the big movers and shakers, including a big speech at two o'clock tomorrow morning from Jerome Powell, and we'll talk about that. Also, give you an idea of what's happening with China, uh, in particular economically, we've had some news there. But let's talk first about this surprise retail drop. This is the thing that's, uh, that's thrown people for uh, a loop uh, this week in, the, in terms of what's happening with the economy. And it suggests that the wealth effect of the big fall in house prices we've seen so far in Auckland City and Wellington City, about 15 to 20% uh, at the bleeding edge of the market. Uh, and of course, it's starting to roll over into the rest of New Zealand. That is starting to have some effect. So what you can see there is real core retail sales per capita. Good chart from BNZ. Thank you very much. And you can see that uh, this is going back to 96. So pretty smooth until we had that big drop, of course, during the first lockdowns in 2020. Then we bounced back with a vengeance. Boy, we went out and spent up large. We went to Harvey Norman. We went to Noel Eming. We went to Mitre 10 and Bunnings. We bought everything we could. And now we've got way too many air fryers and barbecues. Uh, completely unnecessary <laughs> Wellington, but um, you know we went spending, and then it really came off a, came off the boil late last year, early this year, when Omicron hit. We had that second series of lockdowns, and um, we started to get uh, a bit nervous. And then it bounced back in the March quarter, and a lot of people thought, oh, it's going to keep bouncing back now. We're, we're back on the horse. It's all good. Well, we've seen a 2.3% drop in real retail sales, and that was quite different to what the economists were expecting. They were expecting an increase of 1.7. So uh, 1.7 was the consensus. I think it's the wealth effect starting to take effect here. And also people are seeing, for those people who do have mortgages, that they're starting to have to pay a bit more. And even though um, petrol prices are down, people are a little bit nervous. Now these numbers actually started people talking about a recession again. Remember we had that down in the March quarter and the thought was well we'll get one or one and a half percent growth in the in the June quarter, a bit of a bounce back. Well some of that confidence has gone out of the market. A bunch of the economists are now saying hmm, well we still think it's going to be growth but 
maybe not the big growth that we were expecting. So um, some people are even talking we could have a technical recession. We'll see. Now, this is the big news that's come out today, which, well, big news for me, you know, I'm interested in this stuff. The Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Numbers, which have come out from ANZ, and that has been a, uh, a very good result, which um, shows that there's a bounce back going on. So when you have a look here, this goes back to 2003. You can see here we, we dropped off during the global financial crisis, 2007, 2008. We bounced back up again. Here we go, the first lockdown. Woohoo, we're all good. And then the second series of lockdowns, lockdowns came through and we were not happy at all. And you can see we've collapsed really at the beginning of this year. One of the interesting things about consumer confidence, this is something that John Key always said, is watch consumer confidence. If people are unhappy about their own financial situations and how they're going to spend money, they're probably not going to vote for the government. And that's certainly been a very close, uh, closely connected thing these days, is what's happening with consumer confidence often tells you how people feel about the government. So there's been a bounce in the last two or three months, and that for me is interesting. I think people have looked into the teeth of, you know, higher higher fuel prices, higher food prices, and uh, all this talk about the lockdowns and the war, and uh, we went into the winter, and it's been cold, and it's been wet, <laughs> in the wettest winter we've had in, in Wellington and uh, Christchurch, by the way, uh, in our history. Climate change is a real thing. And, and I think, though, that as we head towards the summer and the worst hasn't happened and petrol prices are down again, people are feeling a bit more confident. So we're starting to see that confidence bounce off its lows. And um, sort of amazing, really, that it's so low. You've got to remember, you know, back when we had a real recession, uh, back in 1991, uh, we had unemployment at 10.9%. And according to the, the even longer run charts of what's happening with consumer confidence, investor confidence, we are more depressed and grumpy now than we were uh, in 1991. And remember back in 1991, the BNZ had almost just collapsed. People were being laid off in their thousands. We just have the biggest, you know, sh most shocking uh, shake up in our economy that anyone had, can remember. Our benefits had just been slashed. Our credit rating was being um, uh, slashed. And people genuinely thought we were about to go bankrupt again. Um, so in theory, we think things are worse now than they were then. I don't think they are. How can you possibly think things are worse when unemployment is 3.3% and anyone who owns a home is sitting on something that's worth a million dollars, even though it's down from 1.1 million at the end of last year. So I think that's stunning. And again, um, how can we possibly have consumer confidence lower than the GFC? For those who went around during the GFC, and I'm sure there's a few people who, who were, um, you've got to remember, you know, the world's financial system was 24 hours away from a complete collapse. You know, unemployment jumped up to 6 7% from memory. We're now at 3.3%, um, and people's incomes are rising pretty quickly. So. We can see here a bounce in confidence. That's interesting. I think it's interesting from a political point of view as well. Also, interestingly, I think we're starting to have a look at what's happening uh, with people who are saying what they're going to do about buying a big household item. So we're we talking fridges, cars, couches, those sorts of things. The sort of things you go, you, you check with your partner before you, you, before you buy it. Can we really afford this couch? It looks so good. No, no, things are tough. You know, I might lose my job. Um, look, the mortgage rate's going up. Nah, let's not have that couch. The old one's just good enough. Thank you very much. Well, have a look here. Obviously, the question in the survey is, good time to buy a major household item is the dark blue line. And you can see that's fallen off a cliff really since about 2018, uh, which is an interesting uh, uh, problem. It's obviously dropped down in 2020, um, bounced back after the first lockdowns and has been falling ever since. So that says we're really locking up our wallets, we're not spending money, we are very nervous about the future. But have a look at the light blue line. That is actual real retail sales. So what that tells you is that um, 
just in the last month, people have become slightly more confident about a big uh, purchase or slightly less unconfident <laughs> uh, if you're looking at a, ne a net negative number. But um, there's a really big gap with sales, i.e. we say we're not going to spend the money, we're not going to buy the couch, we're not going to buy the car, look how tight things are, I can't afford it, the mortgage is up, um, oh, I'm grumpy, look, it's raining again. Um, but actually, what actually happens with spending? Well, real retail sales, although they were down in August, are much, much stronger. And when you look at the history of that chart going back 20 years almost, you can see we've got the biggest gap right now between what people say about their own propensity to buy and how much they're actually buying. So they're saying to the surveyor, oh, I'm grumpy, I'm not going to buy. And then they go along to Noel Lemings and Harvey Norman and then they buy it. And um, my sort of um, finger in the wind about how people feel about buying these big purchases is to watch what the advertising people at Noel Leeming and Harvey Norman do. So uh, one of the things that I like to have a look at is how much I see those big wraparound ads for newspapers. Have you seen those? You know, the Dominion Post, uh, the New Zealand Herald, the Press, even the Otago Daily Times will have these huge wraparound ads so that you can't actually see the news. You might be able to see the, the masthead of the paper, but you've got this big ad for Harvey Norman or Noel Leeming or whatever it is. And this is something that started during the lockdowns because the editors and commercial managers of these newspapers were desperate. And um, the, the story I've been told, and I've yet to nail it down, um, is that a junior marketing executive for Harvey Norman in provincial New South Wales one day in the middle of the lockdown, just as it was about to end, wanted to put an ad in the paper to get everyone to go and buy a couch because they're sick of the couch they've been sitting on for six weeks. And so he went along to the local newspaper and then just thought, oh, you know what, let's see if we can get the whole front page. Normally that's really expensive and it's not worth it. Well, um, middle of lockdown, editor and commercial manager said, oh, yeah, I'm desperate for the cash. Just give me the, give me the ad I'll, and we need the money. And, and so the um, wraparound ad happened in the Wagga Express or whatever it was. And uh, the next day, um, massive sales at Harvey Norman. Everyone read the paper, saw the ads, thought, right, yeah, I do need that couch and that bigger flat screen TV. And so since then, since the end of the lockdowns in 2020, Harvey Norman and then the rest of them thought, oh, works for them, we'll, work, we'll do it as well, have been buying these wraparound ads and the prices have stayed relatively low. And as a journalist who used to work for a newspaper, it was always a big deal when you gave the front page to an advertiser. In fact, you know, it was a bit, it was a bit embarrassing if you did that. That said, you know, that, um, you know, willing to sell out to have a big ad on the front page, that the ads were more important than the news. Um, for those of you, I'm sure there's no one here, but um, for those of you who used to read newspapers in the early 1900s, you can actually go on to Papers Past. It's sort of fun. And you can see that front pages of newspapers were always traditionally filled with ads in New Zealand. You had to turn inside the paper to see the actual news. Well, over time, the news started to dominate the front page of the paper because obviously that's what people wanted to read more than the ads and that's how you'd sell the paper. And so traditionally, you'd almost never have a really big ad completely dominate the front page unless someone wanted to pay you an awful lot of money. But during the lockdowns, that continued to happen. So we're now seeing them regularly. And when you look at the sales results of Harvey Norman, Noel Leeming, and just in the last couple of weeks, JB Hi-Fi, and they usually report in the Australian market, they are doing, they're going gangbusters. So we say we're grumpy, the dark blue line, but we're spending pretty well. That tells me there's something going on with the psyche of um, not just New Zealand consumers, but all around the world. Um, I personally think it's got a lot to do with too many people feeling grumpy about the world and uh, themselves because they're spending too much time on their mobile phone. I wouldn't call that a scientifically uh, tested theory, but actually um, there is some interesting science happening at the moment on uh, how it creates anxiety, it certainly polarises our political environment and it's a real worry. Okay, now... This is really interesting. We've got some numbers out today from ANZ's Consumer Confidence and Sharon Zolner did a really good job of breaking down uh, uh, how homeowners 
with mortgages feel about buying a big item versus people who don't have a mortgage feel about buying a big item. So the dark blue line is people without a mortgage. So this is renters or people who own a home and don't have a mortgage. So they, they should be pretty swish. They should be cashed up and ready to spend on the couch. Uh, or maybe they're really old and they just don't spend money. They sock it away, they save it, whatever. Uh, and then the light blue line is people with a mortgage. And the question is, is it a good time to buy a major household item? And um, what you see is that in the last three or four months, people without a mortgage have started to feel better about buying the household item. And people with a mortgage also have seen a slight improvement. It certainly bottomed out in the last four or five months, and we saw a slight improvement last month. So even though people are having to roll over from a 2% mortgage to a 5.5% mortgage, they're actually more likely to buy a major household item. What this tells me is that people who own homes, apart from about 500 young people who bought houses last year, are actually still in pretty good shape. And um, I think that's an important thing to, to realise because you see a lot of noise about, oh, the world's going to hell in a handcart, no one can afford to own their home and uh, they don't have any money. Well, actually, that's not true. When you look at how much money is in bank accounts, cash accounts, current accounts, term deposit accounts, they're up about $35 billion from the beginning of COVID. So there's plenty of money around. And what we're seeing is that borrowers are actually a little bit more confident about big purchases in August from July, and it's certainly bottomed out and is up from a few months ago, even though we know that people are rolling over onto higher mortgages. Um, some good news too from the United States overnight. I think it's worth uh, having a quick look at this. Uh, in the States, they um, work out GDP um, uh, through a series of estimates. So they do a first rough estimate, and then they you know, check their numbers and get some better data and there's a second estimate. And then after about three or four months, they come up with the final version. And they also have a slightly different way of measuring recessions than we do. Um, our measure of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. And it's quite an important you know, milestone when you're in a recession and the Americans get a bit, get a bit touchy about this. You know? We're not in a recession. And you can sort of see what they're saying because remember, they've got very low unemployment as well. So what you see there is the Bureau of Economic Analysis's uh, stats for economic growth on an annualised uh, basis uh, for real GDP. And uh, you can see that in the first quarter, there was a fall of about 0.9%. And then in the second quarter, the first estimate was for a fall of 0.9%. And uh, what we've um, seen with the second estimate is that it's only down 0.6%. And uh, that is better than what the economists were expecting. You may be wondering, why am I um, obsessing over a 0.2 of a percent? Well, it is the world's largest economy. And you know, there's a lot of talk about a recession in the United States as well. Things are quieting down. But actually, they're still pretty uh, robust. And the numbers for jobless claims, so the people who have just been sacked or have left their job and claim for unemployment, uh, that was actually the lowest since July. Um, and, uh, you know, in theory, if the US is coming into a heavy recession, that number should look much uglier, and it doesn't. So that's good news. Now, keep an eye on Jackson Hole this weekend. Um, there it is. Looks good, doesn't it? Um, can't see Adrian Orr on that list, but uh, someone's just getting off the plane. Looks a lot like Queenstown, doesn't it? Well, that's, that's how it feels, um, except uh, there's not millionaires walking around, there's billionaires walking around, many of whom are billionaires because of the central bankers who are turning up at Jackson Hole. Remember, this is the first time they've been together in three years. Watch out for the speech from Jerome Powell, the chair of the US Federal Reserve. He is uh, going to be speaking about whether or not the Fed really needs to crack down on some inflation with high interest rates. Is he going to hike till the pips squeak in the US economy? And uh, the markets think he won't have to, that inflation is um, going to solve itself. You know, they've already seen the Fed put up interest rates to 2 2.5% or so, and in theory it's going to keep on going up to 
4% and uh, that is pretty good. Uh, but um, just in the last three or four weeks, financial markets have started to think, ooh, inflation's coming off the boil itself. Maybe the Fed won't have to really um, hurt us with a big nasty series of rate hikes. And so you've seen the stock markets rally uh, a good 15 to 20%. Now, just in the last few days, some of the short-term and longer-term interest rates have bounced back up again. I see the 10-year Treasury yield is back over 3%, um, and uh, that is interesting. But if Powell comes out this weekend and said, hey, you guys, you are completely out of line. I do not have your back. There is no such thing as the Powell put. You are going to... Um, uh, get burnt by me putting up interest rates. Get back in your box. You know, that's a sort of 3 4% crunch down in the uh, NASDAQ and the S&P 500 tomorrow morning if he says something like that. Who knows? Uh, you know, already we're seeing commodity prices, food prices come off the boil. Oil is down below the levels that we had before um, the Ukraine war. Food prices have dropped quite substantially you know, some of the shipping delays and the container charges have dropped in the last three or four months. And uh, sure, you know, you've got 8% inflation in the United States. Inflation is still headed for upwards 13% in Britain. So this is the Bank of England forecasting 13% inflation. It's supposed to keep it around about 2%. 13%. And in fact, um, I think Barclays or Deutsche Bank, one of the, one of the banks, forecast 18% uh, infl annual inflation in Britain. They are in all sorts of pain in Britain. And it's very, it's tragic, really, uh, what's going on there. Um, Brexit has been a complete self-inflicted disaster. And now they're getting hammered by higher fuel prices. So um, let's have a look at what uh, has actually happened to money supply. Now, this is un... This is not something you normally look at if you're into modern economics. This is 1970s stuff, you know. This is Milton Friedman's uh, way of looking at the world. And uh, the idea is, is that inflation is always and everywhere always a monetary phenomenon and that if you have lots of money supply flying around because the banks are printing it and they're allowed to print it because the central bank has cut interest rates and maybe allowed them to have a lot of leverage, uh, you would have lots of money supply growth. So what you're seeing in that chart is the line is M2 money supply growth for the US dollar. So when the Fed is printing like crazy, that number is well above the red line. And so what you can see here, the grey the shade, shaded parts, they are recessions in the United States. And uh, what you're seeing there is that this is COVID. So in fact, interestingly, the Fed really started to ramp up before COVID too, things was things was quietening down before COVID. So bang, there's the you know four trillion dollars of money printed here, the growth that went through there, and then it's come off the boil. So now the Fed has stopped printing. In fact, it's starting to uh, essentially sell some of those bonds back into the market. So it's it's doing a quantitative tightening, as well as putting up interest rates. So you've got a massive monetary policy tightening there. Now is it too much? Are we going to, is, is the Fed going to essentially run the US economy into a brick wall? Uh, that's what the, the grumpy um, team transition people uh, say. Or, is, there, or is the Fed, does the Fed need to do a lot more? Because there are some people who reckon that the Fed should be putting the official cash rate, or the Fed funds rate, up above the inflation rate. Uh, <laughs> you know, so you actually have a real interest rate that's positive. Because at the moment, it's obviously really negative and so um you know there are some real hawks out there who say put it up to six percent seven percent go for gold um uh we'll see and that's why it's interesting to watch um uh, Powell tonight because there is a money supply crunch going on things have really tightened up and so the markets are pretty relaxed i think you've done enough tightening don't worry inflation's going to solve itself mm, we'll see uh whether the fed really is like that now it's worth jumping across the North Atlantic now to see what's happening this week in Europe, where there has been all sorts of um, problems uh, come through into the European economy, particularly with gas prices. So last night, and you've got to have a, a good old look at the Dutch 
TTF national natural gas futures. I always check it every morning along with the US Treasury 10-year bond yield because it's hot. And look at that. So what you see there is a chart showing uh, the natural gas futures prices in euros per megawatt hour because, of course, gas is what's used to um, fire up the electricity plants in Europe mostly, or was. Um, and a lot of that gas came from Russia. Well, of course, Russia has cut supplies through Nord Stream 1 down to about 30% of normal. Uh, Russia says, oh, it's a maintenance issue. We can't get the parts from the Canadians who are sanctioning us. And everyone in Europe's going, yeah, nah, Vlad, I know what you're up to. You're putting the pressure on us, so we'll stop supporting the Ukrainians. Um, and so uh, there we go. Last night, that rose from, rose from basically from 200... <laughs> 200 euros per megawatt hour to 300 euros per megawatt hour. And remember, look at the normal price. It's about 30, 40 euros. So just imagine if the main cost of producing electricity increased tenfold. That is brutal. And you can see why Vlad thinks this is a good idea. He is really putting the blowtorch to the belly of the European democracies and their support for... Uh, Ukraine, particularly through the winter, when, you know, for a lot of uh, people, um, they will see real problems. Now, Nord Stream 1, got to keep an eye on Nord Stream 1. Well, a couple of days ago, the Russians said, ah, oh, we're going to, I'm not going to do a Russian accent, thank you very <laughs> much. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, the Russians said, ah, oh, we've got some more maintenance problems. We're going to cut it from 30% to naught for three days, beginning of September. And the, the Europeans went, oh, no, they're not going to turn it back on, are they? And so um, we have seen that big spike in natural gas futures. And it's really starting to bite now. Because uh, if you're a smelter in uh, Europe, you use electricity to do the stuff. And uh, there's been a two or three big smelter closures in the last month or two, which is really... Um, uh, where the pointy end of this spike in, in uh, electricity prices is heading first. Interesting for us, by the way, some of these smelters are aluminium smelters, and uh, uh, TY Point is making out like a bandit right now because it's got cheap electricity, eight cents a megawatt hour from Meridian. And of course, the aluminium price is much more elevated than it has been, uh, in part because some of these smelters aren't smelting anymore. And also because the New Zealand dollar is down at 62, 3, 4 cents um, US. So uh, TY Point, Rio Tinto, is minting it, if you can mint a bunch of aluminium. And uh, they don't want to give up. And uh, interestingly, Meridian said this week that uh, if they were going to sign a deal with TY to keep going, because in theory they're supposed to shut down in 2024, which a whole bunch of electricity consumers in the rest of New Zealand are going, yeah! We're going to get some cheap power finally. Because remember, you know, Transpower have connected up the grid. So some of that Manapuri power can be exported to the rest of New Zealand. Not all of it, of course. And of course, Meridian, who runs Manapuri, don't want to dump it into the market because then they'll um, crash the price for all the other power that they produce. And of course, just quietly, I suspect a whole bunch of other gen tailors, um, particularly the other two uh, government-owned government-controlled ones, don't want that either. That's why they were quite happy with this previous deal that Meridian did with TY Point, which, by the way, um, the Electricity Authority called bullshit on and uh, just in the last couple of weeks have basically banned um, those sorts of big contracts from happening again, which are seen to be disadvantaging other um, electricity users. And the theory is that... Um, uh, other New Zealanders are effectively paying a subsidy of $200 million to keep TY Point going. When, of course, we need that TY Point power if we're going to make the transition to somewhere close to fully renewable. So that's a really... So I've made the Dutch natural gas futures relevant to Invercargill and to the rest of us for our climate change uh, uh, process. And still, we don't have certainty on TY Point. It's a bloody pain in the ass. Right. So if you think it's the continental Europeans who are in trouble, no, the, the, the Brits are in, in trouble too. This is the British national, natural gas futures prices. They've been a bit more elevated and spiky than the Dutch ones. But look, uh, they're over um, 500. Uh, I think that's pence uh, per... Um, uh, 
not sure actually, but anyway, it's um, it's brutal and it's again, you know, a, a huge increase. And so power bills this uh, winter are due to double in the UK and um, rise by £2,000 per year. So basically there's going to be a whole bunch of cold people in Britain. They're not going to turn the power on. And it is really causing political pain there as well. Big calls now for effectively government handouts to people who can't afford their power bills. A um, bunch of people are refusing to pay their power bills. That's a whole sort of you know ch Chinese um, apartment owner uh, tactic. Don't pay for the apartment that's not built well. Um, this is going to cause uh, all sorts of political grief. Interestingly, Labour well ahead of Conservatives now in the UK. And a call today for a hundred billion pound package. Now, France. Uh, this is interesting. I thought you'd talk about the French electricity uh, costs, and these are euros per megawatt hour. Um, they're up to <laughs> they're up to eight hundred at the, in the spot market uh, year ahead futures type stuff. Now, this is unusual because the French actually have nuclear power. They don't use so much the gas, but because of the drought. They haven't got enough water to cool their nuclear power plants. Bloody hell, it never rains but it pours. Well, in Europe, it doesn't rain at all. And the same in, um, in China, which is one of the reasons they've got all sorts of problems with their electricity market as well. So climate change is coming around to bite everyone in the ass, And it's happening right now. And, you know, is there any more clear example of how we got it so wrong and now we're, it's costing us big time, it, you know, Nuclear power, which in theory is one of the ways to solve the um, uh, problem of not wanting to burn fossil fuels to create electricity. Um, now we can't generate as much of that because we need water, which you don't get if you've got a massive drought. So it's tough. Um, and prices have quadrupled in France as well. And they have a bit of a problem in that their jobless rate is higher than the rest of Europe, and so they're going to really, really struggle. Now, you might say, well, that's a European problem. You know, why should we care about that? I don't buy gas from Russia. It's from Taranaki. You know, should be a different price. Well, that is true. And we don't have pipelines across <laughs> Tasman or up, up to Asia or anywhere like that. And we don't, um, obviously, import LNG. When I say LNG... Uh, this is the um, liquefied natural gas, incredibly complex and expensive process to liquefy natural gas into a safe <laughs> uh, tank, on a, and not just a small tank, a massive um, tank on a ship, take it across the world and then let it out at the other end uh, without blowing up a city. So uh, LNG is a thing. Obviously Asia and Japan is a big user of LNG, and Australia is now a big producer of LNG. So that's interesting because the Australians have got big high electricity prices as well, in part because a lot of the gas they'd normally use to substitute for coal and to create electricity is being liquefied and sent to Asia. Well, there's a whole bunch of Asian producers and consumers who are now like looking at their ships and going, well, they need it in Europe. So they're sending the ships to Europe. So what's happened is those high European gas prices have flipped over and increased the prices in Asia as well. So what you're seeing is the dark black line there is European natural gas futures prices. This is expressed in US dollars per million BTUs. I'm not quite sure what BTUs are, but they're there. And the light grey line is Asia LNG. So what this tells us is that the Asian and the European gas markets have started to connect up and are moving together. And that's interesting from our point of view. That's great news for the Australians who are exporting LNG. Big political fights there about whether they should be allowed to export LNG when they've got shockingly high electricity prices in, uh, in, uh, in Australia. And if they have a really hot summer and all sorts of problems with bushfires again and everyone turns on their air conditioning units, and some of the solar plants in South Australia um, uh, burst into flame, or particularly the batteries, uh, Australia's going to have problems this summer. Uh, they don't have enough gas, and um, they can fire up their coal-fired plants again, but some of those have been shut down. So it is hitting Australia too. And all of this, of course, is Vlad, um, the bad and mad and pretty devious and brilliant uh, uh, tactician, putting 
the blowtorch to the belly of um, the democracies of the world by turning off the gas. And this is a problem for Europe because um, you know how the rise in the oil price earlier this year um, was uh, less of an issue um, uh, because we were less dependent on oil over the years. Well, uh, Europe, because they had very dependent on gas for their electricity and a lot of their industrial uh, stuff, this is a chart that comes from Capital Economics, uh, which shows you the impact of the gas price increases in Europe this year in terms of how much it's going to hurt GDP. And it compares it with the two oil shocks of 1974 and 1979. And what you can see there is that in uh, Austria, Germany, Spain, Greece, and importantly, Italy, uh, this is a bigger shock than those oil shocks of the 70s relative to GDP. So, you know, you can see why Vlad is doing this. He knows where the weak point is for the Europeans. And in Germany uh, and Italy and Greece, it's really painful. This is important for Italy because it's already a weak economy with way too much debt. And if there is financial strife in Europe, it's going to hit the Italians most. And unfortunately for the Germans, um, the European Central Bank will just have to hoover up all those Italian bonds and the Germans will just have to grin and bear it because um, otherwise the European project blows up again. So um, this really is an issue for Europe and it's a stagflationary issue. You've got recession and you've got inflation. And it really depends on how the war goes, whether the Ukrainians win and uh, whether the Russians ever turn the gas back on. And that's, that's one of the reasons a whole bunch of people want a lot of um, uh, peace, peace deals done. And also what the ECB does. Now, um, if you think things are tough in Europe, they're also tough in China. And this is important for us. So just in this last week, uh, China has announced a new stimulus plan to um, offset some of the hit from their COVID lockdowns and also the implosion of their apartment development sector. And what you can see there is the size of the bailouts, various infrastructure bond issues by the Chinese government to the local state governments and the developers. The problem here, of course, is that the state governments in China and the developers are so mired in debt and they've stopped doing all sorts of work that it really you, you can't really get it going again unless you just throw a gazillion dollars. And the Chinese, too, realise that they overinvested in infrastructure oh, I wish we could have their 60 million empty apartments here. Uh, and they, remember, China invests 50% of GDP in investment and infrastructure and um, technology and business and motorways and concrete and steel. 50%. You know, in New Zealand, we're lucky to get 10%. So they've probably gone too far, too much investment. Uh, uh, and there is a bit of a stimulus going on. 150 bill US sounds a lot, but actually in the scheme of things it's not. As you can see there from that chart, the extra stimulus is just not going to cut it. And so China is still in a bit of grief. And the loans for the states are not that big to really um, uh, solve the problem. So what does this all mean for us? You know, um, I've had fun doing a, a lap of um, the global economy. Well, interestingly, this is a chart that came out this week from Sharon Zollner, and it tells you how much capacity our homeowning households have to cope with a shock. We are remarkably resilient. So um, what we're seeing there is household debt servicing as a percentage of net disposable income. This will shock you if you haven't seen this chart before. So what, it goes back to the 98. So what this says, that at its worst, in 2007-8, when interest rates were over 10% during the Helen Clark years, uh, homeowners were spending 14% of their disposable income, so this is after tax, 14% on servicing their mortgages. Um, that, that was painful for a lot of people, but obviously not disastrous. We didn't have huge numbers of mortgagee sales. And then as interest rates fell, and then the Reserve Bank from 2013 stopped uh, a lot of people taking out 99% home loans, so the LVRs were imposed, you saw that the cost of servicing the mortgages dropped to under 6%. Now, 
Now, obviously, it's up a bit since last year, as we've seen fixed mortgage rates rise from 2% to 5.5%. But the current uh, baseline forecast from ANZ, who are seeing the official cash rate go up another 100 basis points from 3% now to 4% at uh, the end of this year, that even if you see you know, a much, much more awful response from the Reserve Bank in terms of putting up interest rates. Let's say inflation just goes completely nuts and team transits really get blown out of the water. Um, I'm crying into my laptop every day because I lost. Well, well that, that's as bad as it gets, 300 basis points above that um, current baseline forecast from ANZ. So even at its worst, let's say um, the fixed mortgage rates go to 9%. Which you know, like everyone will go, oh my god, we can't handle nine percent. That's never, that's just that's disaster zone. Well, it's not as bad as it was in two thousand and seven. So actually, an awful lot of equity and uh, plenty of room for households to deal with it. Now the question is, you know, what's going to happen in the rest of the world with stagflation? How are central banks going to react? Central banks could do one of two things: either they could say. Inflation is the main thing. We're going to kill that. Uh, we're not going to stop until it's dead in the water. Or they can say, actually, you know what? Looks like it's solving itself. I'm, I'm going to put up interest rates, but not brutally. And um, that's my current baseline as a paid-up member of Team Transitory, that rates don't necessarily go so high. Okay, there we go. I'm back. And uh, hopefully that was... Uh, uh, understandable. You could hear me, and you could see the um, uh, see the see the uh, all the all the charts because that's what makes me happiest when I can see that people um, uh, have got their charts right. Now, if you've got specific questions, could you throw them into the Q and A? I will also look through the chat and try to answer some of the questions as well. I'm going to go to the Q and A first. And uh, Ben Ham, hello Ben. Uh, ben has a, a question. Uh, good to see you. Um, it seems like responding to climate change is going to involve significant costs, and now the costs are coming. You're exactly right. Uh, uh, how does this change inflation over um, the next few years? How does the Reserve Bank plan for this? Because there is this argument that um, climate change is a one-off cost shock. It's going to push up the cost of energy and potentially uh, transport more widely and, and also cost of housing. And that, um, that extra cost is going to lift you know, uh, baseline inflation rates and therefore interest rates. And that's quite possible. There is another way you can look at that, which is that um, when you shift from expensive fossil fuel, oil and gas, particularly at the moment with the Saudi Arabians and the Russians controlling it, and then you go to solar power, wind, water, which is much cheaper now, the new stuff. And you roll that out properly and you start to be much more efficient about how you use transport and your housing and you start to get towards net zero. Actually, it's cheaper to have transport and uh, uh, housing then. So it's, I think it's a bit early to say that you know, we need to build in an extra margin of interest rates and inflation to deal with climate change. But... As we can see, you know, just this week, not enough water to cool the nuclear power um, producers in France. You know, uh, electricity producers in southwest China um, not having enough water to produce electricity. Now, obviously, where did the water go? It's going to come back at some point. By the way, where did the Chinese and French water go? Into the frickin' atmospheric river that came down and dumped on Wellington on the west coast. Oh, climate change. Um, but it's happening, and it's happening now. So hopefully that's the, that's the uh, story there. Pat Clark asks, how much of those sales are on credit? Okay, that's a good question. So you're asking the question, you know, what about all of these couches and flat screen TVs? How much of it's on credit? Well, quite a bit of it, certainly in 2020, was on buy now, pay later. And that um, is coming off the boil a bit. I think buy now, pay later's time is up. Uh, it's a sort of a one-hit wonder. Um, a whole bunch of young people who don't like credit cards thought they could uh, get some money and pay it back and not have to pay interest. Of course, they all forgot their payments or didn't make them on time and paid big 
uh, fees and uh, this unregulated sector is rapidly in the process of being regulated. Whether it uh, gets regulated out of existence, I don't know. Certainly when you look at the um, consumer borrowing figures from banks, so this is in terms of uh, personal loans and car loans, you know, the sort of thing that isn't a mortgage, um, they're actually down substantially. Now, that's because we actually have quite a bit of cash and a lot of those debts were repaid. The triple uh, CFA also made it more difficult to take out a car loan and uh, do that sort of high interest rate personal lending stuff. So um, not a lot of it's on credit, actually, a lot of that spending. Um, got to remember, 3.3% unemployment. People are getting wage increases, sign-on bonuses. They're working longer hours. So actually, when you look at household income growth now versus a year ago, it's up at double-digit rates. It's growing at double-digit rates, 10 11%, particularly for those people who are in the borrowing zone, that sort of 25 to 55 zone. They uh, actually have high and rising incomes. Now, they may be stressed as hell and have trouble with getting childcare and uh, it's not a lot of fun, but they have plenty of income coming in to pay for it. Right, so how much is the drop in big sales due to the unavailability of new cars? We had an order in for a new Toyota for months. Ah, good. Um, double cab ute, John? High Ace? Hilux? Or a Corolla? Anyway, uh, yes, you're right. Some of that drop was unavailability of new cars, but also there was um, a big rise in uh, uh, electric and hybrid cars a few months ago when the new rebate scheme kicked in. That first flush has gone through, so some of those sales have come off more recently. And you're right, um, some of the um, drops in sales have come from uh, audios. But those numbers I've, I've pointed to there are core sales. They take out those sorts of, of violent autos, petrol, diesel, that sort of thing, to get a sense of what's going on. So actually, uh, people are still spending up. Not as much as they were, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens when the, all those cars come back into the sh showrooms again and whether they'll, come, they'll go out just as fast as they were. So John Graham asks, what do you think of donut economics? Do we need to look beyond GDP obsession? So this is, this is really good. Um, Mike Joy, thank you Mike for your emails and um, comments, uh, has uh, been on to this one. And we really are at a moment when people who are in the mainstream, serious people going, you know what, maybe we've gone as far as we can go. We can't keep growing GDP anymore without destroying the planet and we have to think of some other way of doing it. Um, donut economics is a great way to analyse this issue of um, trying not to uh, destroy the planet by always having growth in GDP. Uh, and we've uh, heard, and thanks to those who pointed it out in the comments this week, um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, come out and say that, you know, maybe this is as good as it gets. This is as big as we get. We have to deal with shortages from now on, which is all right for him to say, because um, often that, you know, which is as much as we can do, that's it. We're going to lock in where we are now. Essentially locks in a whole bunch of inequality and uh, forces poor people to restrict themselves, whereas he's on a private jet with his banking mates every five minutes. So, yeah, um, uh, I think this becomes more of an issue as we start to understand um, how damaging climate ch change is right now, how fast it's changing, and how um, the feedback loops and the tipping points are becoming crucial now. And uh, it's going to be a hard, hard road, though, because to give you an idea, so uh, BlackRock, the world's biggest fund manager, you know, the um, Larry Fink runs it. Uh, Jacinda Ardern turned up to New York to go there and say nice things to him. Well, uh, and they've been on the ESG bandwagon for a few years um, saying, you know, we won't invest much in fossil fuels and we'll do the right thing. Although, interestingly, they've pulled back a bit from that in recent months. A bunch of American states, you know, the red states, the ones down south and out west, are now going around kicking out fund managers who were um, uh, banning investments in fossil fuels. Texas, for example, essentially going after the fund managers for being green. So it's going to be hard. And um, 
it's, it's a question we're going to come back to again and again. Thank you very much, John. It's a good one. G asks, how long could Russia stop supplying gas before the lost income hurts them more than Europe? Ah, this is a good question. So everyone thinks, oh, if they turn off the gas, there'll be no money for the Russians. Well, <laughs> they're selling the oil and 100 bucks a barrel to everyone else. And this is the most shocking thing post, post uh, the war, start of the war. Russia's trade surplus is bigger, much, much bigger than it was pre the war. Why? Because they are now selling a lot more uh, oil uh, to other places, to China, to India, at quite high prices for a long period. And of course, they're not importing anything because no one's selling them anything. <laughs> so it's fantastic for their trade surplus. And the Russian ruble is up at strong levels. So they don't, I, they don't care, frankly, about people who don't have enough to live on. Vlad doesn't care about that stuff much. And also, they've got plenty of oil money, so they're fine. And this is one of the reasons, one of the things to watch. Will the Europeans crumble under the pressure? And the political uh, and financial pressure on consumers right now because of power bills is brutal. And uh, they're doing well to, to keep sending the uh, rockets and things to Ukraine. Uh, luckily for the Americans, uh, the price of fuel has come off the boil a bit, which is good, although um, Biden is still in, in, in trouble. Um, but they aren't quite so reliant on gas and not Russian gas. They've got their own gas. Fracking, who knew? It's great for gas. So interestingly, that chart I showed you earlier, which had European, uh, Asian and US gas. US gas prices are up, but nowhere near as much. And uh, they've only, because they, they can't export fracked gas very easily as LNG to Europe. Because these, these LNG um, liquefaction plants are not like, you know, plug it in. They are 10 years of investment and work. And they had one down south, an LNG plant that was offline for quite some time had various um, problems with its technology. So uh, that's why the, the Americans are still you know, right behind Ukraine. Although we'll see as we get closer to the November elections and how the Republicans do. So uh, Julian asks, thoughts on where the Nairu lies and neutral rate in the new era of costly energy? Well, that is right to the heart of it. The natural... Uh, accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. So what that says is uh, currently we're at 3.3% unemployment. The theory is if you've got a very inflationary environment, you can't go below your sort of bottom level because if you do, you push inflation up. Um, and that is a really tough question. You're really asking what's the neutral interest rate and it's, it's hard. For so long, central banks got it wrong. They thought that you know 5% was the Nairu. Or 4%, but we're at 3.3% now. Maybe it is a bit low, um, but it's amazing how we find things down the back of the couch and people work 33 hours instead of 19, at least in New Zealand. Our workforce participation rates are very high. Thank goodness that all these, all these old people working, uh, 350,000 people collecting the pension and working at the same time, hopefully paying enough tax to pay for their own pensions. Um, and uh, we are pretty good at finding stuff down the back of the couch. And also, uh, pre-COVID at least, using the globe, bringing in cheap labour, outsourcing it. So, yeah, I still think that's an open question and a really good one. Anne asks, will someone get someone on from the MFE? This is good. Okay. No, I'm keen for new guests. We had a bit of a dry one this week. And um, you'll be sick of the sound of me talking to, talking to myself into a, a laptop. Uh, thank you, and I appreciate the suggestion. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do some digging. That would be a really good, um, a really good suggestion. Uh, should I feel guilty for quiet quitting? Is that what you're doing right now? <laughs> is looking into the laptop doing the, doing the hoon and not doing work, is that quiet quitting? I, this is really interesting, this quiet quitting thing. If you've got time, we've got two minutes. Quiet quitting, this is the idea where you work to rule. Essentially, you know, you do as little as you can, get away with, and um, you don't quit. But you just quietly do the very basic, right? It appeals to the New Zealand sensibility. We are a passive-aggressive nation. And we don't really want to say to our boss, give me a big pay rise, or else. Instead, we sit in the corner fuming. Why isn't he giving me a pay rise? I'm not going to challenge He should know that I need a pay rise. 
<laughs> so so um, uh, it appeals to us, I think. Now, also, I've got some sympathy for quiet quitters because for a long time, those people in full-time, 40-hour-a-week jobs, salary jobs, they didn't work 40 hours a week. They're working 45, 50 hours a week. They're checking their emails at 11 o'clock at night. We, did, we do need to go back to that whole eight-to-five thing. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm the worst possible example of that. Um, I work for myself and have fun. Uh, but when you work for someone else, I reckon, you know, 40 hours a week is probably as much as we should do. And sometimes working to rule, it's probably, you know, 100 years ago, we finally worked out that eight hours a, a day and 40 hours a week was about as much as a human could handle. And we sort of, we sort of lost that somewhere along the line. So quite quitting, interesting idea. Uh, decarbonisation, according to Stephen, means a huge shift in our power generation. Uh, big talk will all be renewables. Well, TY Point. So obviously you heard what I was saying about TY Point, and it all made sense that the Dutch futures prices and the closure of the European smelters um, was interesting. Well, Meridian saying, you know, well, we might have to do another deal with TY. All that talk about hydrogen is frankly distractionary um, fluff. That's not going to be anywhere near uh, TY before that power is needed. It's going to have to come onto the rest of the market, and I hope it means that wholesale prices go down. Um, it might encourage a few people to use electricity in their vehicles. Um, we'll see. Uh, those big Gentiles have a pretty good record of keeping their profits up, as we saw this week. Um, the uncertainty is the problem. Lake Onslow politically radioactive? Well, Labor don't think so. There's a bunch of cabinet ministers who think it's a good idea. Uh, and Keith Turner thinks it's fantastic. Um, I think Lake Onslow is also a distractionary thing. It's not going to be built for 20 years, and that'll be way too late. We need to be shifting to renewable and um, uh, walking and cycling and using electric bikes now, not in 20 years' time. And I think demand management is as much of the issue as supply. Lake Onslow, again, this is an excuse to not invest in new renewable. And it works for the government in that they can look like they're doing something without spending any money. It's just another, um, uh, it's just another uh, um, working group uh, design exercise that costs $100 million. It's some awfully expensive blueprints, but anyway. And I do know they you know, had to drill into the rock and all of that. But, yeah, I, Lake Onslow doesn't happen. Um, the Nats, when they get in next time, whether it's this year, next year or 2026, don't want it. And it, there's no green light for them. I don't think Lake Onslow happens. And what's really needed is those big gentiles to stop giving their money back to shareholders and dividends and share buybacks and start building a whole bunch of wind farms and particularly solar farms. Um, although it's interesting some of the uh, non-gentailers getting in there and just building them anyway because they're so damn cheap. And particularly effective. So um, TY point is a real problem because we can't seem to know how, how we're going to do this and when we're going to do it until we know the future of TY point. Part of me says the government should freaking nationalise it to take control of it. Uh, but then again, people would accuse me of being a communist. So fair enough. Uh, is there a chance the Reserve Bank could be given the power to adjust employee contributions to KiwiSaver as an alternative to manipulating the OCR? That was uh, briefly suggested by David Parker, I think, like 10 years ago. Um, interesting idea. You'd really need to be sure that everyone was on KiwiSaver to do that. And um, that would be an interesting approach. Uh, um, you're essentially forcing people to save instead of spend and take some demand out that way or the other way around. Interesting idea. I think for now, the simplest way is just to use the official cash rate and to not print money to start with or remove the LVRs, but, you know. So interesting, interesting one. Um, disposable income, that is a good question, Brett. Uh, so what is the question? Is what is disposable income? It is uh, after-tax income, after working for families, after accommodation supplements, after NZ Super, all of those sorts of things. It's different for everyone, and there are various different measures of it. There's a thing called equivalised disposable income. Uh, so um, that's... And there are ways you can get hold of those numbers by age group and sex and ethnicity and that sort of thing. John says it's a Yaris SUV. That's the best type of SUV, John. They're the small ones. And I bet it's a hybrid too, so that's brilliant. That's... 
Yes, for a Yaris SUV. Thank you very much. Um, almost to the end of the Q&A here. Uh, how would it work if you left GDP out of your reasoning? I can't, fair enough, I can't believe in GDP anymore. Yep, no, this is a real thing and uh, it'd be nice if people like Treasury started talking like that and politicians did too. But it's hard, you know, we, it's hardwired into our economic DNA and uh, you need some alternatives. And uh, the happiness index that Tibet's got is, hasn't really caught on yet. Um, climate change threat, any thoughts on the government's interventions and sectors under the EMT? Yes. Uh, I need to do some more work on that. Um, the emissions trading scheme is getting tougher, and I see the government's cracking down here and there and taking it off people like TY Point, which is good. Uh, but it's still, you know, until you get agriculture in, it's pretty hard to be that confident about it. And I get a little bit grumpy with the people who say, oh, we just need to let the emissions trading scheme do the work. We'll make sure that everyone's in it to start with. And... Um, and then we can talk, but for now, um, good. Yes, emissions trading scheme. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen. Hey, it's five past six. I've got to let you like um, uh, let you like go home. Um, I've been having too much fun by myself. Um, thank you, and I will have a really good look at these uh, chats. I'm sorry that I haven't had a chance to read them all. Thank you so much. That was fun, all on my own. I hope you enjoyed it. Kaki everyone. Have a great weekend.